clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief of Police One. Hi, welcome back. I'm Jim Dudley. Uh, Jim, one of the um, kind of themes that we've seen in the headlines in the last couple of weeks since our last podcast um, is, is a lot to do with free speech and the, um, the officer's response to, or to be quite frank, lack of response to enable that free speech to happen in a safe and positive way, right? So very recently, of course, we know that um, you know, in Anaheim, California, there was a, a big demonstration by the KKK. A bunch of counter uh, demonstrators came and, and there was a bunch of mayhem. Um, three people were stabbed, in fact, and others were injured. And it was criticized that there wasn't enough police pr- um, presence to prevent that sort of a scenario from happening. On the other side of that coin, as Cleveland begins to prepare for the Republican National Convention, Uh, They're ordering $50 million worth of riot gear, you know, protective gear, so that they're obviously going to be able to uh, um, enable protesters, and there will certainly be a number of protesters at the Republican National Convention uh, to do their thing uh, peaceably. Um, You know, and, and, you know, even just just recently in in New Orleans, speaking of presidential campaigns, um, the the police really had a very good response to uh, a Trump rally that had a whole bunch of counter-protesters or or protesters come out, um, and it went off, and Trump was able to do his thing in free speech, and the, the protesters were able to do their thing. And so I don't really look at this as a, you know, a one extreme or the other. I, I, it's not a damned, or damned if you do or damned if you don't thing. I think what you have to do is have a, is a middle-of-the-road path where you enable the free speech, but you don't have such a presence that you're creating an environment where people feel like they're, they're not um, being allowed to have their, 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 their thoughts heard. Well, that's, that's the balance that law enforcement has to, to take, that perspective that everyone's equal in a First Amendment-sanctioned um, rally or demonstration. And it's up to law enforcement to, if, if it's not a spontaneous demonstration, if it's a planned demonstration, people um, applied for permits, they've given you a, a route that they want to uh, march and rallying spots, that's awesome. And then it's up to law enforcement to take a look at the geography, maybe decide uh, whether or not um, they have to use some some natural physical barriers like uh, traffic, like putting one side, one group on one side of a, a street and another group on the other side. We've done that often in San Francisco. Um, it's, it's, it's not siding with one side or the other, regardless of their point of view and how much you may agree or disagree with it. You've, law enforcement's on that really you know, delicate precipice of, of being the middleman and um, you know, being Solomon and weighing things and, and deciding who gets what. So in, in San Francisco, again, um, we've had uh, demonstrations, we've had Occupy demonstrations, we've had Palestinians and Israelis, we've had pro-life and pro-choice, um, complete polar diametrically opposite groups. And, and with large success, we've, we've managed them well. And I think there were several um, tactics and strategies that we used, and, and meeting with the organizers was a great first step. Even in the application process, we would reach out to them and ask them what their timeline was, how many people they expected, uh, what sort of sound systems they were going to have, how much possible traffic or, 
or pedestrian disruption uh, was going to happen. And with all those things in mind, we set about our plan, how many officers we would need, uh, what sort of staging areas we could give them, again, through a natural break or using barricades or some other um, type of control device. And uh, that generally worked well for us. In the past, going back to the 1992 Rodney King riots, mm -hmm. uh, then Chief Daryl Gates was highly criticized because of the LAPD response to the, the riots uh, at the, the outcome of the verdict uh, when there was a good chance that there were, were going to be demonstrations. And uh, I understand reading a, a book that I, I really enjoyed, uh, Official Negligence by uh, Lou Cannon, uh, Lou Cannon uh, frames the situation that uh, with uh, tempers high, uh, racially motivated um, uh, violence being discussed, that uh, Daryl Gates said, hey, I don't want the police to be uh, a, a, a... Like an impediment, effectively. No, no actually, <laughs> the, the, he didn't want them to be the spark that would ignite uh. the riots. So... <clears throat> Rather than have the Metro squads uh, outfitted in riot gear, shin guards, <clears throat> shields, helmets, and long batons, he told them, keep all that stuff in your trunks, keep it uh, back at the stations, let's not give that high profile um, uh, look, and we'll keep a low profile, and we won't go in unless we're absolutely needed, and of course, yeah. everything yeah, went to hell after that. Yeah, not a, not a great strategy, and it's really reminiscent of what kind of what happened in, in Baltimore. Um, obviously, in Ferguson, you know, they were kitted up, you know, for 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 whatever mayhem might ensue. But that even didn't didn't prevent places from being burned to the ground. And in Baltimore, in particular, you know, where you know it, there was the, um, the allegation, at least, and I believe it personally, that uh, officers were told stand down, give them room to do their thing. And of course, what their thing was was burning a Walgreens or a Rite Aid. To right. The no, and that that was um, that was information given out by mayors and. And local prosecutors let people blow off steam and, and look what happened. Yeah, and I think that you can allow the free speech, but you know, I think we're, well, also there's kind of two things. Importantly, you made the distinction that there are times when you have a known scheduled demonstration that's going to happen. You know, we, we may not have gotten a press release that there's going to be a demonstration at the Republican National Convention, but one might surmise, given the folks who are going to be in the building, that you need to be prepared for that. Absolutely. So clearly Cleveland's doing the right thing. Clearly New Orleans did a good job knowing that someone with with Trump's kind of bombast and, you know, whatever, whatever your feelings on him are, one can agree that he's bombastic. Sure. Um, that, you know, and be, being in New Orleans where there's kind of a history of racial tension, uh, that, you, you know, be prepared for that and right. enable the free speech on either side. To your point, I've lived in San Francisco for 20 plus years. And I don't remember ever seeing real violent confrontation between particularly the, um, the uh, pro-life groups, because uh, that's an annual, it's like a parade right, practically. Right. Um, and it, it's always, I, I don't participate in the darn thing, but I, I've seen it on the news and I've never seen any kind of a problem with it. Yeah, the only, the only foul balls were those ones we talked about on, on other shows about the celebrations, the World Series, right? The but, 72 trash can fires in the streets. Right, and those are the spontaneous ones right. that you haven't had the opportunity to meet with the, the organizers. You haven't had an opportunity to kind of negotiate where the route is going to go and keep people away from particular areas or things like that. If it's that immediate spontaneity, um, for example, following the Ferguson um, no, no writ, you know, for Officer Wilson, you know, 
they knew it was coming. They just didn't know on what day, you know. Right. So it just kind of popped off. They were pretty prepared for what happened. You know, they they were they were there and present. It, unfortunately, they weren't able to prevent a lot of that destruction. <laughs> this I, I'll, I'll say this: they did a better job of the second time than the first. Sure, sure. And and I'll say this: that Ferguson, um, it was sort of Daryl Gates' prophecy that if you do mm-hmm. show force if you show military style vehicles and camouflaged uh, military BDUs and helmets and um, sniper rifles and things like that and I, and I know I know uh, what some of the some of the things were the precursors to the calling out of those things but they, we're still feeling the ripple effects from Ferguson in that response. I mean, the 1033 program, um, you know, the government supplied surplus and, and monies to uh, law enforcement agencies to provide some of these things. At some point, uh, you've got to really, ha- ha- you know, be that person to decide when you roll it out. And you just, uh, it was it was an image that struck the country. Why are the police outfitted like the military? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that what it really, I mean, we said it at the beginning, we've said it sort of in the in-between in the in here, um, but as, you know, kind of we begin to wrap this up, it really is about balance. It really is about, you know, trying to be Solomon, as you'd put it, um, and creating an environment where you, you aren't so uh, present that you're creating that um, spark, if you will, mm-hmm. but you have to have the type of presence that will prevent something like what happened in Anaheim, where, you know, it, it was just a, it was just a, unfettered mess you know unmitigated disaster where you know these two groups you know they're they're clearly adamantly in opposition with one another and there is the possibility for violence you have the kkk here right you know there's a possibility someone's going to get hurt so i think you have to have that middle ground you know one of the things i like that you mentioned is natural barriers the street for example that can kind of Come, it's not directly under your control, but having a, a line of officers obviously is one of the number one tactics. Having equine patrol is a fantastic way of keeping people because horses tend to take up a lot of darn space and have them in the street. They do, but it, specifically in San Francisco, we've been told not to use uh, horse mounted patrols for crowd control or demonstrations because uh, people can be injured by horses. Uh, yeah. So we've been sued before, and like anything else, that's that tends to change policy. Right. All right, well, Jim, thank you very much. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening. I'm Doug and this is the Policing Matters Podcast. I'm Jim Dudley. Welcome back. So, uh, Jim, it's it's certainly something that's um, top of mind for police officers when particularly on a, on a foot patrol, beat patrol, out there interacting with the community. Um, you know, safety is obviously paramount and part of that safety involves um, making sure that a person you're about to talk with or do a field interview with um, is not armed. Uh, the, the, um, the, the seminal case in this, um, quote, stop and frisk um, tactic is uh, obviously Terry versus Ohio. It was, I think, in uh, early 60s, Detective um, Martin McFadden observed a couple of guys casing a joint. And, um, you know, of course, he was a detective. He was an experienced officer. He, he saw the signs that these guys might be uh, looking to do a, do, a, do a job, if you will. And uh, he approached the two guys, and because he had this experience, he thought, well, me, these guys might be armed. If it's going to be a, a stick-up, you know, then these guys might have guns. So 
He went to do a, kind of an interaction with them. He frisked them, their outer clothing. Um, the court held that that was not a violation of uh, their constitutional rights. Uh, it was an officer safety issue. Um, and, you know, fast forward to now, you know, to, to nowadays. In the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of um, opposition to uh, stop and frisk. And a lot of folks are saying that stop and frisk is, is racially imbalanced and uh, is focused uh, too much on African-American males. Um, in fact, Mayor de Blasio ran on a ticket in New York uh, that he was going to discontinue, in effect, um, the stop and frisk. And, and he really, in fact, has been successful. They really kind of reduced that number. Um, some of the some of the interesting stats that have come out of Boston recently on this on this stuff is uh, uh, they're they're beginning to now measure and post on their website um, the the field interviews or field interrogations that they do and and just a couple of months ago I think the most recent stats I think it was for for, for January of 2016 uh, might have been February 58 um, percent of those who were stopped uh, and frisked were uh, African American 22 percent were white 13 percent were Hispanic the department uh, contends that that is um, coming more into a racial balance, obviously. Um, the thing of it is, though, that you know when you're, when you're going to approach a subject or a person on the street, it's an officer safety issue. If you have prior contact with that person and they were armed at that time, pretty good idea to go and frisk, frisk them and make sure they're not armed this time you talk with them. If they're a known frequent flyer or a known gang member, where you know people who tend to be armed, you want to go and make sure that before you go talking to them, you know, that you're going to remain safe for that contact, right? Sure, and I think in, in the case... In the Supreme Court decision that, that validated Officer McFadden's or Detective McFadden's stop, he articulated the reasons why. And it was suspicious activity, three guys in an alley, they walk over, they look into a window of a shop, uh, each of them take turns, it's a hot day, they're wearing a coat, I believe, they're um, feeling around their, their uh, waistband areas, and when he does do the search, of course, he comes up with guns. So... Uh, all of that was articulated, and that's the reason why the Supreme Court held up the, his search. And so today, that, this was a 1968 ruling, I believe, and today it still yeah. holds. So number one, I think NYPD uh, showed a dramatic drop in violent crimes, uh, homicides from 1990 to uh, 2012. I think the, the numbers dropped by thousands yes, uh, they did. in the five boroughs of New York. I think they went from close to 3,000 to uh, well under 1,000 by the time uh, uh, Mayor de Blasio came in and said he was going to stop the stop and frisk tactics. I think it was a poor choice of words to call it stop and frisk. I mean, it, it, it brings to mind uh, this sort of arbitrary stop and frisk uh, program, and, and that was not what they were doing. Um, any law enforcement officer in in the nation can still, with the articulation and the reasonable cause to believe that they're they're talking to somebody who may be armed, uh, can go ahead and do the the search for weapons. Um, there there are other there are other tools to use, and we've seen them used well across the nation. Uh, gang injunctions. Uh, gang validations. Uh, Boston, you mentioned Boston, and Operation Ceasefire is you know, the gold standard of evidence-based policing and a mm -hmm. program that looked at everything from uh, a child's background, their nutritional uh, needs, their home life, um, witnessing violence, addiction, alcohol, all of that. And um, it brought the police together with public health, with 
academians, with um, parole, probation, sheriff, district attorney, public defender, judges. Everybody came to the table on that, and that's why it worked so well in Boston. So uh, stop and frisk as NYPD knew it may be over and done with, with Mayor de Blasio and, and Commissioner Bratton coming in and, and putting an end to it. But the Terry versus Ohio um, searches um, with articulation is, is certainly uh, reasonable today. How do you think that, you know, you know, you and I, you know, we tend to agree on almost everything except Apple, it seems. Um, you know, how, how do we who agree on this um, help to um, articulate this position of reasonable, um, you know, and, and reasonable suspicion? And again, based on past experience, you know, Detective McFadden had years and years and years of experience. And he just looked at the guys. He went, that's hinky. I'm going to go find out. And they look right. like they're, they have guns. I mean, that's just obvious, right? Right. So how do you articulate? It, it, that, was, that was the opposite of an arbitrary stop. You know, he was doing proactive crime prevention in his neighborhood of, of his patrol. And, you know, how do we articulate that to the, to the general public who's up in arms about stop and frisk? You know, because we, like you just said, Boston's done a fine job of it. And obviously they're tolerant of it. They, they're making some reforms there, I would think, um, based upon some of the feedback they've gotten. That's, that's the article I read anyway. But, you know, how is it, you know, we can continue the, 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 the Terry stop. Maybe we have to get away from just the terminology of stop and frisk. Definitely. Get a new publicist, number one. <laughs> no, but... Uh, Really, it's it, we're our own worst enemy in law enforcement when we do things because we know that's the way they, you know, quote, always have been done, and we don't let the public know. So I think I've said it probably 15, 30 times on this uh, podcast that we need to demystify what we do to the general public. Mm -hmm. And we're not Batman anymore. We're not keeping it a secret. We're not grabbing and snatching people off the street. I mean, we really should... Uh, reach out more to the community, explain how we do things and why. And um, still, I'm sure some people won't be satisfied. Well, that. naturally, of course. Yeah. But, but still, uh, the tactics that we use, um, we've got to be, uh, we've got to assume that we're on a video camera somewhere, mm -hmm. somebody's got one, and uh, that it'll hold up in court. So nobody's... Uh, arbitrarily stopping people with the hopes that they're going to get a great arrest and it's going to go to prosecution because chances are if you cannot articulate that initial stop it's not going to go very far right exactly well maybe one of the other things is that you know when you're filling out the field interview card or whatever else maybe there needs to be more data on it you know like maybe there might there might need to be some sort of additional collection of this is what my suspicion was when i went there yeah, is that a reasonable thing to ask? I, I understand what you're saying, but I think once you get into a boilerplate or a template, then you start following into, you fall into the trap of all your reports look the same, mm. Officer Wiley. Right. Everybody was, you know, head on a swivel, wearing a coat on a dark day, reaching <laughs> into their pockets, reaching in their waistband. So uh, I've seen it, defense attorneys oftentimes bring up um, several reports by you and they mm -hmm. all read the same. So there's a hazard in using a template or, or some sort of boilerplate. Right. Um, well, in, in, in some, you know, obviously there are departments that are, are pulling back completely on this. Obviously, New York is, is really pulled back. Um, 
what do you see in the future? Where is this going? Where are we going to wind up if, for example, New York um, retains Mayor de Blasio for the next eight whatever years he's still eligible for holding office and that policy remains in place? Uh, you know, do you feel that that might affect crime rates, which have substantially gone down in the years prior to de Blasio getting there? Yeah, you know, will absolutely. we see the, 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 the you know a, a negative effect of this? Uh, of course, I, I you know what we've talked about the Ferguson effect. We've talked about the fact that some officers may not be so keen on jumping out of their car and taking somebody on, and so I see policing going to the the twenty four seven fire department standards of. Um, going back to the station house and going out when you're called. And there is an extreme hazard in that. Um, if if uh, the criminal element out there figures that they are not going to be stopped, then you're going to see more people walking around with burglar tools, with uh, empty bags, with um, tools to get into places, with uh, weapons to rob people mm -hmm. with. So I think there's a real hazard in, in pulling back from proactive policing. Um, but I think there's still a lot of working cops out there who know that all they have to do is be able to articulate the stop. So I think with the advent of cameras, officers are going to say, it's going to be on, on camera, so I'm going to have to explain what I'm seeing and narrate that for what the viewer's seeing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think um, oftentimes we, we use words like, um, I had a gut feeling or my spider sense was tingling or... Right. And obviously that language is not really going to be all no, that helpful no to way. you. You know, it's hilarious to say saw drunk arrested same. That's a great line from J.D. Buck Savage. But that, that cup won't hold water anymore. Right. But we see it, but we don't articulate it. We see that it's freezing cold outside, but this guy's sweating. We see that... You know, there's bright sunshine, but he's got no sunglasses and his eyes are wide open. Right. Um, well, that's kind of what I was driving at with, with, you know, the collection of more data on the card. That's kind of what I was, you know, where whatever it is your report, however, whatever reporting mechanism you, you, you have yeah, to have yeah. is to have is to be that a little bit more granular and specific about, you know, this is what I saw as opposed to, you know, the guy looked hinky. Sure. No, I think I think we could do more video training where we show a, a tape to um, the trainees and ask them what did they see. And I think in, in entrance exams, you see a variation of that where we don't expect people to be police officers when they take the test, but we expect them to be observant and identify dangers. Um, did you notice that the guy had a beer bottle in his hand while you talked to him mm -hmm. for 10 minutes? And do you think the beer bottle could be a weapon? Yes. So um, again, we're, we're training people, we're teaching them to articulate what they see. Uh, they see it, they know something's wrong, but they've gotta be able to identify it as well. Yeah. Well, in wrapping up, I will encourage everyone uh, who's listening in to uh, check out Dan Marcu's excellent piece on um, the Cleveland detective, Martin McFadden. It's part of our police history series. Um, and if you click on uh, the, the, the police history tag in that article, you'll see a number of articles that have historical relevance uh, w with regard to a whole variety of things, women in policing, SWAT, uh, and a whole host of uh, really excellent pieces. But do, do check out the Stop and Frisk Terry versus Ohio Officer McFad or Detective McFadden uh, piece. Yeah, and while you're at it, check out MAP versus Ohio. Ohio really gave us some really good Supreme Court cases. 
Outstanding. We'll be back in just a minute. and thank you for listening. Welcome back to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug. Hi, I'm Jim. So, Jim, in a number of states, four to be precise, and the District of Columbia, it is now legal for a person who's 21 years of age to possess and consume uh, certain amounts of uh, marijuana for uh, recreational purposes. There are other states I don't know the the number directly uh, off the top of my head, but, you know, a a dozen and a half others or so uh, where medicinal uh, marijuana is allowed, where you have to have a recommendation. It's not a prescription. No doctor is allowed to prescribe, uh, but they can make a written recommendation that you get marijuana for your glaucoma or what have you, if you're recovering from chemotherapy, for example. Um, There are, I think, two things um, relevant to law enforcement, um, and probably many more, but the two that I'd I'd like to kind of really examine are, number one, the the enforcement of of, of, uh, safe uh, motorists and motoring on the freeways or the streets. You know, right now there isn't um, a breathalyzer, uh, although a company named Hound Labs announced their intent to develop one uh, back in December, and it's now in testing. So if we have good fortune, we'll have a, a device sometime down the road pardon the pun, with regard to uh, detecting more scientifically um, the presence of THC in, in, in someone's bloodstream. But right now, you don't, you don't really need to be a drug recognition expert to kind of know um, by virtue of your experience and your expertise um, when you're looking at someone who's very probably smoked marijuana or done another drug, plenty of kind of indicators uh, at a traffic stop that you can rely on. Uh, but, you know, as we as we move forward, you know, the, the couple of things are, you know, how do we keep the roads safe? How do we keep where it's where it's legal to s- smoke this stuff? You know, obviously, if you're high on pot, you are a danger on the road. And then the number two thing that I'm, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about are in those states where it is legal to smoke recreationally. Uh, you have to be 21. But say, for example, you're 21 years old, you graduate college at the age of 23, 24, you've gotten... You know, you, you, you spent your co- college years playing in a band, you know, and you smoked dope with the band. You realize after school that, you know, you're really not cut out to be a, a, a musician successful uh, enough to, to support yourself. And you go, ah, my dad, you know, my dad or my uncle was a cop. I think I could probably be a good cop. What about the standards for, you know, your, the past life of that individual who hasn't smoked dope anymore? You know, they've quit, but... Um, They've decided that, uh, you know, they're they're honest on their entry form saying, you know what, this is what I did in the past. You know, would that be prohibitive? Sure. Well, well, your first point is is well taken, although you um, you give people uh, a lot of credit by talking about glaucoma and cancer. (laughs) But I do know uh, young people who've gotten uh, marijuana cards uh, based on their inability to sleep, uh, their inability to focus their attention um, headaches, uh, things of this nature. Well, you, where, you've said before that the whole thing is a joke. It's I mean, a it's, joke. A, it's a total disaster. It's, it's a joke, yeah. right? Um, and follow the money. You can see why um, it gets um, such good press. I think it's really dangerous that we don't know the long-term uh, health effects of uh, marijuana use, casual use, chronic use. Uh, I think there's a, a side issue with. Um, if we legalize marijuana uh, recreationally, do we give it away? 
So if you have a habit or you want to smoke, it's not cheap. Um, I've been to the marijuana outlets professionally, <laughs> and um, they're upwards of uh, $300, $350, $500 an ounce, depending on um, your, your strain or your vintage, if you will. So there's, there's definitely a cost factor. Um, if you're going to sit around and smoke pot all day and you don't have a high-paying job that you can do from home, then you're going to have to come up with the money some some way. Yeah. So those are all issues that, that concern me. And in addition, uh, I think some of the states that have uh, legalized it have seen some problems. The, the black market has not gone away, uh, reportedly, in states like Colorado. Um, in, in Alaska, which um, approved their measure, um, you have a high alcoholism rate. You have a high suicide rate. Um, I'm sure marijuana is not going to make that any better. So there's really a lot of concerns as, as far as health effects. But then who do we prohibit from um, which professions do we say that we don't want you smoking within three days of your shift or five days? Or it's really unpredictable since THC stays in your system for for days and days and days, it's unpredictable. Yeah, chronic users actually they get they, they have so much THC in their system that it never actually goes away. You know, it's always there at a certain level, and it's just at which level is you know when it spikes, it spikes when they, they when they use it. Right. So, do you want your pilot, your bus driver, your caregivers, adult or child caregivers? Do you want them to be able to smoke a bowl on their way to work? No, 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 and no. Okay. I think that that's the appropriate answer to that. Right. And we haven't you even know. talked about uh, brain surgeons, EMTs, yeah. police, fire, judges. Uh, you know, give me the list of professions where you really don't care. Right, exactly. I mean, it, frankly, I don't want my plumber to come into my house and having had, you know, partaken of the green herb just prior to coming on the job because I think it's going to affect his effectiveness. Yeah. You know, I think that it, it, because it is an impairment of some description, you know, whatever level that that person is at, I mean, if it's totally annihilated, then we don't even want to be around them. But if, you know, even if they're within reason having a conversation, um, I still don't want them to have their hands on my, my plumbing, my pipes, my, my stove. You know, I don't want, so I certainly don't want my officers, you know, and of course we have to remember that there's a Drug-Free Workplace Act passed in 1988, which means that any department can have policy, any airline can have policy that you can't use this drug and have this list of Schedule A drugs. And oh, and by the way, it's still a Schedule One federal drug. So, I mean, right. it's, you're already committing a felony, a, a, a federal crime by possessing this stuff, right? Sure. I'm sure I'm sure you will see um, those cases uh, challenged. Somebody loses their job for smoking or failing a test. And and how are you going to prove it unless you give spot spot tests? And it's a union issue and on and on and on. Well, to answer your, your second uh, issue on um, the background of right. some individual who's maybe from a state where it's legal, um, by, by agency, every agency has their own criteria when they do a background on uh, what, what level of prior use would, would a person have. Mm -hmm. and, and I understand it that uh, time and distance from just about anything will usually uh, get you in most departments if uh, you meet the, the standard of time and distance from DUI, multiple driving tests, 
uh, crashes, um, points on your license, uh, marijuana use. There's some things that will just out and out just prohibit you from, from getting a job within a certain agency. But there are others where a time and distance between the offense um, may still get you the job. Right. Okay. Well, that's, I think that's good to know, particularly, and it's got to be a little unsettling if you're a law enforcement leader in Colorado, for example, or you know, in, in you know, one of the places where recreational use has is, is now been, I think, almost two years. Um, so you know, there, there could very well be candidates out there. Um, you know, in, in, in a time when it's getting more and more difficult to recruit and retain talented professional police officers uh, because they're being drawn to every other profession under the sun. Because, it, you know, if you're that plumber, you can't get sued for doing your job very frequently. You certainly can't get shot for doing your job very frequently. Um, so uh, those other professions are drawing some really talented people away from what they maybe five years ago six years, 10 years ago, would have wanted to become police officers. So sure. you're dealing with the, the shrinking pool, and it's shrinking further still if you have a restriction against you know any prior use in, say, Colorado or Alaska, Washington or Oregon. So I think we've basically covered uh, most of the topic here on med medical and recreational marijuana. It's, however, going to be something that as November begins to get closer, we're going to be looking at probably again, because there are going to be ballot initiatives almost certainly here in California, um, you know, they've had a couple of them that failed, but now, the, the, you know, the, the, the number of people in this state in particular that favor medical or, or recreational marijuana has significantly increased. Um, you know, and as those ballot initiatives roll around, um, I think it's going to be really important to talk about which states are looking at this. Sure. And, and in, in states with, with really tough economies, you're going to look at the allure of getting the tax from uh, marijuana. So it's going to look really good to you right now. Five, ten years down the road, if there is a, a health hazard, if people are relying more on health, public health systems, uh, you're really going to see the, the unintended consequences down the road. It's my hope that states that have um, uh, people who are really pressing for this, take, take a, a moment and, and sit back and wait and watch and see. Because I think we, we do need to look at data from Colorado in particular, who amended their constitution. They didn't just pass a law. They had an amendment to the constitution of the state. So uh, that's going to be really hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. You know, other states that have passed laws, they might be able to amend their laws. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'd encourage people out there who are thinking about this kind of initiative uh, to wait a few years to see what kind of, as you'd said, you know, secondary and, th and third tier effects this is going to have on their state. Sure. And, and I'd love to hear from from any law enforcement officers from Washington, Oregon, Alaska, Colorado or D.C. and, and hear what they have to say with what they're dealing with now and some things that we we didn't think that wasn't in the ballot initiatives, but they're having trouble with right now. And to do that, you simply need to email um, me and Jim uh, at policingmatters, that's all one word, policingmatters at policeone.com. Once again, I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll check you out in a couple of weeks. All right, be safe.